Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. It, this is episode 99 in take three, so I'm doing okay. Uh, yes, I, I was a little late to rise this morning, and it, I only just had my coffee, so the wheels are only just beginning to turn for me as well. That, that's right. You are still in Australia, so you're both on the same side of the world, so we are both recording in the morning, which is apparently a problematic approach to, uh, to, to podcast recording. One can do it, but not both. Uh, that's true. And if, if we're on take three for just the greeting, you definitely know that the coffee hasn't kicked in yet. That's right. So everyone better buckle up, both because uh, this may be a disaster and we both may explode halfway through. So, uh-huh. Welcome to 2017. <laughs> That's right. Welcome to 2017 and ep- yeah, episode 99. We are we're al- almost to 100 and we are sponsored by, as we are every every episode, by MailChimp. MailChimp offers forever free pricing, which means you it's a freemium model. You, you can send up to 12,000 emails a month to a list of up to 2,000 subscribers and you can use that plan for as long as you want. It will always be free. If you want some additional features or if you want to send more emails or more subscribers, then you can sign up for a paid account and then you can send more. You can get more features and you can remove the badge from your emails. And I, I, I think I mentioned this. I, I've, you know, I use Belchip at Chatechery and the, when I had to start paying for it, it was a wonderful feeling because <laughs> it sucked to pay for it, but it meant that I had uh, more subscribers and was sending more emails. And that was that was a great thing. So our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent. Yes, great product, and we're lucky to have them as sponsors. Thank you, guys. Speaking of three takes, we this is this will in some respects be our third take on mm. the Amazon Echo and Alexa. So we we really talked about the Echo in episode seventy, uh, which was about the Echo, which was about Amazon broadly and mm. and the sort of Amazon you know approach to. Their sort of modular approach to their entire company and their mm-hmm. culture, and having these teams with these hardened interfaces that interact with each other, and how that manifests itself in a platform sort of approach generally to their products, which is super important with regards to Alexa, to Alexa and its prospects versus Google Assistant, Apple Siri, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. Mm. The second one was episode 81, which was entitled We Have Always Been at War with Amazon, uh, which really focused on Alexa in particular. And I believe it was in that episode I said right at the top that I think Alexa is going to, quote unquote, win the the home mm. voice assistant war. Mm-hmm. In, so in some respects, this week's article was, was a trailing sort of uh, – it, it was – just just came seven months after I had I'd already said it on the podcast, but it doesn't matter apparently until you write it down. So here it is, um, and and we can podcast about it for the, for the third time. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yes. Just uh, I I was about to give you a little bit of cheek. Just listen to the podcast. But um, I <laughs> <laughs> the way that this is unfolded, it's this this space is so interesting. The way it's all unfolded with the different players and how Amazon's come from behind in so many regards. Uh, they they tried to get into the phone market and it fell dismally. But it, how I actually, in some respects, set them up to do so well uh, in this particular space because they were able to come at it from a blank slate and their organization is so well suited to build a product just like Alexa. But I'm sure we're about to get into that. Right. Well, let's start with the, let's start with the caveats. Uh, mm. We don't know any real numbers in typical Amazon fashion. We don't know how many Echoes there are. Mm. The probably one of the big indicators this week is at the CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in, in Las Vegas, 
Everyone's talking about, oh, it's the Alexa show. Everyone's talking about Alexa. This was actually the case a year ago. So I actually, I actually sketched out a, the notes for an article about Alexa a year ago when mm. at last year's CES when it was clearly sort of getting getting traction. So that's one caveat. We don't know if they're, they're winning. Uh, we don't have any exact numbers. Another caveat is Amazon remains a U.S. only or Alexa mm-hmm. remains a U.S. only product. Uh, both Google Assistant and Siri both work internationally. They work with more languages, and and obviously Amazon doesn't have a doesn't have a phone. Uh, they, so that's a big advantage for both Google and Apple. And you know, Google is really good at this stuff. They're, they're, I think their technology is. Both theoretically is better, and I think practically speaking, anecdotally, as someone who uses all three products, uh, I, th- I think it, it, it is better. The, the better point is interesting, though. The, one thing that I kind of mentioned this article, and I think is worth pointing out, is that so many comparison tests, like mm-hmm. get a tweet, oh, I asked for like Beethoven's fifth, and it played something else. Like, okay, that's like, of course, it should get music selection right, right? But people have like these arcane trivia questions. I asked this math question, da da da. Like, first off, no one's asking. Like, who cares? It doesn't matter. And and it, I don't really care that. It's kind of amusing that like there was a thing about like Siri, like Nike, like the presidential debate, right mm. or wrong or whatever, mm-hmm. and everyone's passing it around, comparing it to like Google Assistant or whatever. Like, yes, it should get that answer right. But I think focusing on trivia questions. No, no matter how important those trivia questions are. And so I'm using that, that sounds somewhat trivial, but I mean it just generally. Like, does it get this answer right or wrong? Misses the point of what's actually important for these being good. And what's far more important is accuracy and speed. Yeah. I would rather have a service that understands, accurately interprets what I say mm. and does it very quickly and has far fewer capabilities than one that has far more capabilities, but regularly gets it wrong. Yeah, I and mean, is slow is slow to boot. I, I as I as I the article was great this this week, by the way, and I'm really looking forward to diving into it more. But as I read that part, I was I I think you were spot on. Um, it's almost like. Uh, people have fallen into the trap of focusing on party tricks as a way of differentiating the service without uh, recognizing that when you're using these devices, like the the most important use case is going to be something, they're going to be regular things like turn on the lights or what's the weather. And the reason people are going to use them is not because they can ask the most arcane questions. It's because it, I ask it to turn on the lights and in a amount of time that feels almost uh, immediate, the lights are on or they're off or whatever you want. And it does so with a super high degree of reliability. And I think that's where it, it's Google does have a technical advantage and that technical advantage, that big data, that that being really good at cloud services lends itself really well to dealing with the quote unquote party tricks type stuff. But that's so impressive about the uh, uh, the Echo when I first used it was how you could talk to the damn thing. You could be on the other side of the room and music could be playing and you could say, turn the music down and it would somehow hear you and get that right and do it immediately. And you begin to trust in the fact that when you ask the Echo to do something, particularly if there are other people in the room, you're not going to be left standing there like an idiot talking to yourself because you've asked it to do something and then nothing happens. That's exactly right. And and this is always the case with consumer products. Like 
reliability and trust and convenience like matter far, 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 far more than arcane abilities or features. And in, you know, we talk about this whole speeds and feeds things like uh. in the context of this, this, the speed and feed is the party tricks, right? Mm. It's the jokes. It's, it's like focusing on stuff that's super visible, but what really matters is yeah, it's trust. It's like, am I going to feel like an idiot for, for, talking to this thing or is it going to you know regularly get it correct and the other thing that you know just convenience i mean <laughs> by far our biggest use case is light switches and we I both the google home and alexa alexa's used the most in part because alexa is a lot more convenient to say than okay google which mm. is not it's not great it's a um, mouthful for multiple reasons well it, it, it's so i liked the idea of it being called google or as opposed to uh, anthropom- anthropomorphizing it with a with a human name, mm. in part because uh, it, it like it's more honest about what it is, right? Mm. It's not like overselling itself. And I think I was a little scarred by Siri and Siri trying to be joking and cutesy and stuff like that, and which is annoying at best. And when it's screwed up and then makes a joke about it, is like it's the no. It, it, I, I find from an intellectual perspective, I find it fascinating that this is the one computing product in my life that actually makes me like viscerally angry. You know, that 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 adrenaline sort of rage comes up and I no, I, I'm being like I'm gonna throw my phone against the wall. And I so there's two parts of me. One is like, what what are you doing? Chill out. It's a stupid computer. But why is that think about it? Why is if you step out inside yourself and observe yourself, you look like an idiot right now being mad at this stupid thing. Why but why is that happening? And it's like bizarro surprise and delight. It's surprise and horror. And like what Apple has always been so good at is they get those emotional positive responses. That's what always been their strength. Like some, like that, that first time you do like a drag and drop on the mm. Mac, right? Think back like 20 years ago and, and it does what it's supposed to do. And no one had to teach you how to do it, but it was obvious and it did it. It's like, wow, it, like it, it engenders a, an emotional reaction. And it, is it quote unquote rational? No, but it's super meaningful. And, and, and those sorts of surprise and delight moments cover over a multitude of sins. People endured, frankly, terrible computers that had that were very slow, underperforming, mm. had an OS that crashed, that, that couldn't protect memory. Because why? Because they were so attached to the, the, the Mac OS for the thoughtful way it lays stuff out, for the positive feelings it engendered on a regular basis that they would put up with that over something else and series like the exact opposite whatever good it does no other product in my life that i can remember has engendered irrational rage sorry that was a rant but i've had it in me for a while no and i i think it has to do with the mechanism of interaction right when you when you use something that is much more mechanical which is clearly a computer and it, it appears on the friendly end and intuitive end of the spectrum, I think that is going to engender surprise and delight. But when you are at the point of trying to impersonate typical human interaction <laughs> uh, and it is not 
and it is not reliable or and it starts making jokes about it it can become infuriating it's uh i started laughing because it reminded me of uh, a youtube video this is a little bit of an aside a youtube video i just watched about two scottish people trying to operate a uh, voice activated elevator and they get in the elevator and they can't get out and they soon begins to start swearing at it because the elevators uh, is speaking in an American accent and they're doing their best attempts at an impersonation of an American accent and you can you can feel exactly what you're talking about it's like I just want you to do this simple thing that I'm asking you to do and you cannot do it and you say this is the future but all I feel is my blood pressure going up Anyhow, we are we are now doing exactly what I complained about, where we are focusing on the sort of party trick aspect of these devices, as opposed to like the the bigger sort of ecosystem systematic things that was theoretically the point of this article. So mm. uh, shame shame on us for <laughs> for for not only doing that, but then being hypocrites about it. It's easy to slip into feeds and spades. <laughs> it always is. It always is. Anyhow, the, the, I think the more interesting part of this article, at least from my perspective, was this sort of operating system yeah. concept and idea and why operating systems are fascinating. They're obviously fascinating from a technical perspective. Um, I, I know a little bit how they work. I took operating systems in, 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 in university for what it's worth back when I was a computer science major. Systematically, the way operating systems work is, and economically is super interesting. Uh, it's it is because it's in some senses it's almost like a economically it's like a double or almost a triple sided market depending on how you depending on how you view it and depending on the nature of of the uh, of the underlying hardware so you have app developers you have users and potentially hardware makers as well and building up double or triple sided platforms is always a challenge but if you can do it successfully it can also be a super lucrative and super well defensible position to be in for sure and this is why people call windows the greatest business of all time mm. uh, you know i think the iphone ended up being a more profitable business for, both from a revenue and from a absolute profit perspective but from like a just a pure business perspective when you combine revenue generation profit generation and defensibility windows really is is the best ever and the reason it's the best ever is because yeah not just was it like a triple sided market but it was a triple sided market that was self reinforcing in a way that like uh, that Microsoft basically could not screw it up even if they wanted to. And and people, like, you had antitrust judgments and all kinds of things coming at it, and it actually, uh, even with everything else, it's still completely dominant. It took a paradigm shift to where people no longer focused on the product category for it to even start to feel like it's shaking at all. Right, exactly, and even today, it's still making you know billions, billions of right. dollars, and the company's barely paying attention to it. Mm. Right, and so, so because what if you think about it, Windows at its peak, what's happening? Because everyone needs needed Windows, and why did everyone need Windows? Well, because that's where the applications were. Why, why were the applications there? Because that's where the users were. Why, you know, and how Windows got started and the way it piggybacked on IBM. I think we've mm. talked about before. I've certainly mm -hmm. written about it before. Put a link in the show notes. But the, the basically, Windows had enterprise users. And given they had enterprise users, developers built apps for them, whether those were apps for specific companies or general productivity apps. Mm. Because there were more apps, they got more users. Because they got more users, they got more apps. And so you 
had, which we've talked about in the context of, of iOS and Android and stuff, but it, because in the case of Windows, it was because it could basically scale perfectly because it was software, right? All, all, all computers, except for the small subset, that was the Mac, we were all running the same apps. If you had, if you one of those apps, it'd be on there. Compounding that even further is the way software used to be distributed locally. It, it, it required you to go out and buy a box and retailers didn't want to carry multiple boxes. They just wanted to carry the thing that, that, that most people would buy. And so you'd walk into a store and you'd just be confronted by windows apps and that would only compound it further. It's not, it's not like it is now where software is distributed over the internet and users can be aggregated even further. And so that localization, the way it was distributed only compounded what you just described. Exactly, because Microsoft, like this, was the ultimate control of distribution. Because they, they, well, one, they own the choke point in the value chain, but that flowed out into all these, all these other mm. areas, right? How did CPG companies work? We talked about this. They would create laundry detergent to serve their folks. Was always the eighty percent. They wanted mm. to serve the largest portion of the market. They'd advertise on TV, and yes, there may have been niche users that preferred something different, but it wasn't worth the time and effort to. To serve them, and so they'd end up buying just the mass market one anyway. When, like, and this was the case, yeah. Without the internet, this was absolutely the case for for software as well, which only deepened the the, the sort of network, the two sided network that that Munoz was in the middle of between developers and users. Mm, totally. What, what what was so interesting? What's so interesting when you add in the hardware part, though, and this is what makes it such a neat trick, is that because Windows was the the essential piece that meant for hardware vendors their plane of the only possible plane of competition was performance that was because they all had to work with windows so they couldn't create their own lock-in right it, to create your own lock-in you need to have your own os which obviously you know apple was trying to do but the the downsides of that we'll talk about in a moment but but they all had to use Windows, and it's the only way they could compete, the only way they could be viable businesses was to improve performance. And so what happened was basically you had every hardware vendor in the world heavily incentivized to make Windows better, right? All Microsoft had to do was sit in the center, and everyone else did all the work and took on all the risk and did all the investment to make Windows computers faster and better and higher performing and cheaper because they were competing against each other. Right. It's not just performance. It's almost performance at any given price level. And so there's effectively what you've just described is a complete commoditization. People don't, they just want, okay, I have $400 to spend. Who can get me the most performance to run Windows for my $400 or $500 or $600? And so you had all these people competing to uh, improve efficiency at any given price point. And it is the perfect... This is where uh, a a modular uh, modular type approach to a system will always win over an integrated approach when you figured out how to uh, uh, when you figured out where the appropriate breakpoints are uh, break is probably where, where the interaction points are between things like the applications and the operating system and the hardware and it's been figured out and then you just say okay guys you're responsible for the hardware you go compete to push it forward and you have this whole ecosystem of people competing to uh, increase efficiency in terms of price price for performance and Microsoft's just sitting there watching as all it was a cutthroat 
industry, uh, cutthroat competition in so much of this hardware to improve and improve and improve. And Ma- Microsoft's just like, this is fantastic. It's only, it's only embedding our position as a, as a monopoly effectively. Exactly. Because every single part of the ecosystem was, by virtue of Microsoft being the monopoly, every part of the ecosystem was incentivized to entrench the monopoly. Right. It, like the hardware was incentivized to improve performance and make things cheaper for Windows computers. Developers were incentivized to create applications that worked on Windows. Mm. And users were incentivized to use Windows because that's where all the applications and the best hardware and the best hardware were. And the reality is, you know, the Mac never had a chance because Windows was established in the in DOS. Like it was DOS was first. Mm. But DOS, you know, all the backwards compatibility was for all intents and purposes, it's the same same operating system. Mm-hmm. And DOS was based on IBM, and Windows wrote it on, on IBM's coattails. They had the single part of the stack that was not open and was not could not be you know sort of competed down in price, and they were established before the Mac ever hit the market. And so the Mac one never had a chance, but it got way worse over the 80s and 90s because they the Mac was not benefiting from this. They 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 did not have scale, they did not have developers, they did not have competition in creating creating, you know, the hardware. And so it was they started out at a massive disadvantage that people don't appreciate could never have become overcome. But then it got worse and worse. And the, the mistake people make in analogizing stuff to the Mac is they focus on the part where the Mac fell behind without appreciating the Mac never had a chance. And so it's like that analysis is always kind of half right and half wrong. It's mm. it's it's true that modularization buried the Mac. It's not true that the Mac failed because of modularization because the it never had a chance. If that it, makes sense, it's certainly this discussion certainly puts in light the difficulty Apple faced because they obviously, if they were had a different operating system, they were obviously going to have issues in terms of getting scale with application developers. But they chose to open that war on another front in terms of the underlying hardware by using PowerPC chips, for example, and not take the the benefit that Intel was getting of everyone focusing on developing or all that money and all those users focusing on improving the performance of the, the Intel chipset and the decision to switch from PowerPC to Intel in this light was obviously a very smart one because it then just nullified the the Wintel advantage of the underlying performance of one of the key uh, the key parts inside every computer. Right. It was. It wasn't just chips, though. I mean, it was. It was every part of the stack. Yeah. I mean, Windows were behind. I mean, Macs were behind in graphics. They were behind mm. in sound cards. They were behind mm. in networking. They were behind in, and beyond just like price and, and competition. Mm. The the you know the big difference. We we've, we've talked about this before, so we don't need to dwell on it. You know, the big difference today is one Apple was first in a way they like again. Windows was the Apple II was there, but practically speaking. Windows was first. The Mac came later. Today, mm. you know, the iPhone was first. Uh, two, the market is is so much bigger that having a minority portion of the market is more than large enough to to support a developer mm. ecosystem. Which then this the, the app. This is a huge thing that this is the biggest mistake I think people made who always predicted the iPhone would fail is they were so focused on percentages, but absolute numbers matter. And and I, Apple might only have twelve percent of the global 
smartphone OS market, but that that's twelve percent of like a two billion device market. It's, well, it's, this it's, is what this is. I think the the point that we were talking about earlier and the big change that the internet has wrought. Like in in the old world, I think. Uh, market share mattered because you would, for example, software distribution or hardware distribution, if you only had 5 or 10% and uh, market share and you're a retailer thinking about what software to stock, are you going to put boxes on your shelf of the the hardware that only has 5 to 10% or are you just going to dedicate it to uh, the the operating system that has 90% market share and most retailers would just put 90% up there and that only made the problem worse but the the thing about distribution the internet and the distribution it enables you don't need to worry about the retailers you can go direct to your customers wherever they are and that's why it's shifted from a game of percentages to a game of absolute numbers because you're not fighting those localized battles everywhere you're just aggregating up all the users all around the world and uh, you can you can look at it in total numbers rather than in percentages. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. The, the other thing, the, the point that I've made before too, is that from a hardware perspective, the iPhone is pretty modular. Mm. Like they, they they source almost everything. They there's very few things that they make themselves. Obviously, mm. they design the processor themselves. But again, they have so much on an absolute number. They sell so many devices that that's an investment that that they can they can pay off. Whereas you know the Mac back in the day was was doing lots of its own custom sort of stuff and, and and Apple's integration is with the assembled product and the and the OS and and the the chip in particular but lots of the other stuff they're like as we talked about before they're in many respects much more modular than say Samsung for example mm. which is quite vertically integrated in the actual you know the, the the component part of of the phone so which means they're fully competitive as far as technology you know, as far as the underlying technology goes. And that's the case with the Mac too. Everything on a Mac is standard now. Like all the hardware parts are standard. And that wasn't the case, you know, previously. I think the other big change though is just the nature of the internet abstracting away the importance of... Uh, the internet has effectively abstracted applications above the underlying operating system in many instances that used to be much more important. And that's why the Mac had a fighting chance. And it's also what set the stage for um, smartphones to to come along because so much of what we were using computers for was the internet. And suddenly having a web browser in your hand uh, was a, a huge, huge improvement of just having it on your desktop. And one of the things that I just loved, and I never really thought about it like this, I just loved about your article was the way that you described Google as an operating system for the internet. Without question, I mean, what the, re- the reason why Windows eventually faded was not just the phone, but it was it was the internet in that it didn't matter that you were using a Windows computer or not. I mean, most people still use Windows computers, but by that point, Windows momentum was more about inertia than it was about necessity. Mm. And like the moment your business moves to being driven by inertia as opposed to being driven by, you know, something more meaningful from a strategic perspective, like that's the warning sign that you're in big trouble. And so that that's when Windows became fragile. When mm. people bought Windows computers because that's what they bought, as opposed to bought Windows computers because they needed to run this application mm-hmm. or they needed to run that because that was a meaningful lock-in. The fact that you know, and this is a, this is a applicable to lots of companies. Like this is why you should be nervous. Was why Facebook's so nervous with the friends and family thing, right? People use Facebook a lot because they use Facebook a lot. That's if is when you lose that 
true differentiation and it's more about habit and inertia, it's, it, that can be defendable. It's, it, that can be a way to build a business, but it's a much more fragile state of being than having some a real genuinely meaningful lock-in. Totally. And that applies to Apple. I mean, this is the reason why Apple, the iPhone is a more profitable business, but the reason why it's not a Windows-type business is because Microsoft could utterly and completely screw it up and it wouldn't have mattered. They were still going to make just as much money because all the the factors had them sort of locked in the middle. If Apple produced a dud of a phone, like they'd be in huge... They'd be in, in in big trouble. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's the that's the distinction. If that makes sense, it absolutely does. Absolutely. And yeah, we, we're way in a rat hole. But but the the broader the broader point, yeah, the, the Google point is this idea of building these sort of multi sided networks and being at the choke point. Mm. If you were to kind of abstract away the concept of an operating system oh, away from cool. the actual like m- the actual application and manifestation inside of like a computer to being the choke point, then you can see that all of the most profitable companies are exactly like this. And if you kind of squint, this is a little bit like this is another way of thinking about sort of aggregation theory. Mm. So on the internet, Google so you think about Google in the middle, what's on the top and what's on the bottom? Well, the bottom we've talked about in aggregation theory. It's all the people, it's all, all, all the websites, right? And what did all the websites do when Google became dominant? They had to adjust everything that they did to make sure it was easy for Google to index them. And if Google changed its ranking algorithm to say this was important, for example, you need a mobile site, then gosh, we can't lose our Google page rank, so we're going to adjust what we do, adjust how we operate to fit in with Google because uh, being compatible or being au fait with what Google wants is like the most important thing in being found. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a, no matter how it's done, it's a massive technical, you know, it's, it's to create the original Google Spider or whatever and like scour every single web page on the internet but it's a lot easier when every single web page on the internet like i have one of chatechery like a site you have a sitemap mm. and a sitemap is not a user facing thing it's a document produced on your site that is built for google and it, it presents to google this is the link structure of the entire site this is where mm. everything is and google can ingest and ingest it super easily and quickly and that's it's just like your hardware makers making their stuff work on Windows and competing each other to make it better. And you're you, you're in some respects weakening, quote unquote, weakening your position. But you have no choice because you have to be found in Google. Right. And and that's it's the same dynamic that that drove hardware manufacturers in Windows is the same dynamic that drives web pages with regard to Google. Mm. The lock-in part is different, but also interesting. And and and. and it's kind of the same if you squint with Google. It's it's users and data. The more people using it, the more searches they're doing, the more Google's getting feedback on what's right mm. and what isn't. Are they clicking that top result? Are they clicking the fourth result? Are they clicking through to the second page, which no one ever does, but whatever. But they, they are getting a network effect of users and their data. More users are generating more data is generating better results, getting better users, getting more data. And you get this, it's it's not necessarily applications that are built on Google, but it's it's the it's the same idea where you're creating lock-in. And in the case of Google, what's so fascinating, we've talked about this context of antitrust, is it's user-selected lock-in. People mm. use Windows because they had to use Windows. It, they might have hated Windows, but the application they needed was only available on Windows. And this left Windows susceptible when, when that was no longer the case. Once you could start choosing based on the user experience, suddenly Windows didn't, didn't seem nearly as strong as it used to be. In the case of Google, people choose Google because it's the best option. 
it works the best. It's this is just this is also just a perfect illustration of how uh, so many things are changing as a result of the internet, but this one in particular, the nature of lock-in and how data is becoming so critical to strategic advantage. And it's one of the things that many of the old world companies, as they transition to the new, I mean, everyone hears data and like the importance of data, but internalizing how it's important and illustrating exactly how strategic advantage is derived from it. This is a fantastic illustration of it. And in the same way that, uh, that, the nature of antitrust is changing as a result of that. The reason that they're in this position is not because they've um, they've they've amassed a control on uh, on a distribution uh, point. Exactly, which is what would have happened in the past. It's rather because they've made it so good that people don't want to go anywhere else. And how you actually deal with that from a regulatory standpoint is going to have to be completely rethought. Right, absolutely. And to the data point, I think the real mind shift that needs to happen is you see all these old companies viewing data and they want they want the data to like generate insights into mm. what they should do. Whereas yes. the difference between what Google uses data is it's a much more iterative self-improvement sort of process where Google's not necessarily using data. The Google search engine doesn't use data to make strategic decisions about search. What they've done is they've built a systematic approach to constantly ingesting and using data to iteratively improve the product in a basically never-ending cycle. That's such a good articulation that the difference is this top-down, I need data to tell me which way to go, as opposed to this bottom-up that I'm going to use all this data to just consistently improve and improve and improve and improve until nobody's able to match me. I've talked about internet, how it removes distribution costs and it removes transaction costs, right? Mm. So you can you can serve you can serve a, a number of people more than before, and that changes the way you think about addressable markets. It changes mm-hmm. the way you think about product development. It's why I wrote about last year, like you, it actually makes sense to a to start at the high end as opposed to the low end mm. because um, you know because it, it scales perfectly. Mm. 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 But but I think what's what's such a challenge for old companies is the information, the, the way you consume information is so much faster and more immediate with the internet. Where, it, because it took a while, like if you sold stuff in a store, you had to wait till it was actually sold. You got the receipts back from the store and you actually knew what the numbers were. And there was a built-in delay towards when you got information and when you could act on it. And when then you make a, you'd make a decision, oh, we should change our distribution of laundry detergent it you it like the when it would actually have an effect was took time right and so there was this long delay in decision making and like response and feedback to what you did the, on the internet it's not it's immediate it's all immediate and the the reality is this the success then comes not from being a human doesn't scale it's like yahoo trying to create a directory of all the pages on the internet it just doesn't scale and that's why all this data is wasted because people are using analog decision-making processes with this fire hose of data. What what Google does and what companies of the future will do is not make decisions really quickly beyond the information that's coming really fast, blah, 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 blah. That, that, that's imp- it's thinking about it completely wrong. It's building processes to automatically use that data in a constantly 
constantly self-improving sort of way. It's building iterative processes that use that data continuously. And if a human is involved in ingesting that data and making decisions, you're wasting your data because it, 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 it doesn't. It's like again, it's Yahoo building a directory for the web. The the example that comes to mind as you're describing this is 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 Uber and what it does with the surge pricing, for example. Like if you're if you're relying on a dispatcher telling taxis, oh, we probably need people to go over to this place and so on and so forth, it's probably the case that your your reaction time is way too slow and there are a lot of people already waiting at whatever that place is. But the idea of building surge pricing into as an automatic as an automatic function based on the number, the data that they're collecting in real time. They get this amazing pattern, uh, real-time information, all these data streams on where people are, what they're looking to do, where the drivers are, and they can use the surge pricing to automatically level out supply and demand. Like That's the kind of thing that you can build into a uh, one of these, an, an internet-era company that previously just wasn't even imaginable. Right, exactly. And and these processes are never perfect, right? I mean, obviously Uber search pricing right. has had its controversies and all yeah. sorts of things, but it's the it's the mindset to data that is that is that is the point, right? And people will game it and figure it out and that's fine. Like that I mean, it's not it's, it's fine broadly speaking. That's the way Google search works. People have tried to game it and Google makes it better and figures out the edge cases, but it's the it's just the mental model of data is totally different for these kinds of companies as they are for any sort of pre-internet sort of company. And changing your mindset is always like is the most difficult thing to do. Right. Anyhow, the uh, we're, we're 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 nearing the end. We haven't even got to Alexa yet. But mm. what happens in an operating system again, broadly defined? And mm. I think Facebook is another example of a of an operating system in that. Here, the suppliers are like publishers and content producers, right? Who, who fit themselves into Facebook's model? Like they literally use Facebook's defined format, like instant articles and, and and videos and things like that. And then the users, the walking for the users is the you know the theoretically the friends and family sort of thing. And and whether that's weakening or or not is a very interesting question for Facebook for all the reasons we kind of mentioned earlier in the, mm. in the Windows discussion. But again, it's Facebook as the choke point. And here in the case of an advertising-based model, and same with Google, the, the choke point is a great place to be because it's the choke point for attention. So it's the most efficient place to sell advertising because advertisers want scale. And, and if everyone is going through if everyone is going through a single point, then that's the absolute best place. You're, it's going to be the highest efficiency place to sell, sell, sell attention by definition. Right. It's, it's interesting, though, that as we transition from – uh, devices where attention is focused based on uh, uh, touch or on looking at things versus uh, devices that are voice activated, the nature of the underlying business model must change because the way that you want to monetize that changes. Like ads, if, if I tell you, if you think Siri infuriates you now, if Siri read you an ad for something when she just gave you her answer, that would, that would I think, it wouldn't just make my blood boil, my eyes might explode. And so thinking about how 
this then how this then becomes a struggle for Google in in this market. Uh, how they build a business model around this versus Amazon, where it's much more clearly suit. Like you can make the connection around how they can make money in this paradigm much more easily. It's just interesting how as it's shifting and as you look at as the interface shifts and as the place in which you are. Uh, operating like the underlying assumptions like home versus out in the world, like how that shifts, how the business models of these different companies better support products in those categories. Well, I mean, I would back up even further. I, I think, remember we talked about that Google's lock-in is the, is the interaction between users and data, right? Mm-hmm. And Facebook's lock-in is the interactions between users and users, mm-hmm. basically. And I, I think it's telling that neither, the lock-in for neither is the interaction between users and developers like it is in a traditional operating system like mm-hmm. it was for Windows. And the reason is is that I, I don't think being a developer – being a developer platform is compatible with an advertising-based business model. Yeah. I, I mean – and this is like the best thing that happened to Facebook. Remember back in the day when I this is when I started to tech career, I got a lot of mileage out of Facebook trying to build a phone. A lot of mileage I was saying how incredibly stupid it was and it wasn't going to work and and not only was it stupid and not going to work, it it didn't make sense for their business. But Facebook mm. was so like there's always the mind for understandable reasons. Everyone wants to own a platform. Everyone wants to own an operating system because they're there's such powerful places to be from a business perspective. And Facebook felt they needed to be there, but on mobile that wasn't possible. It was Android and iOS, and so they were just an app. Being just an app was the best thing that ever happened to Facebook in the history of the company. And the reason is because there wasn't room for a developer platform. There was only room for ads. And that's exactly what they needed to be, right? It became the the, the such an amazing ad platform where on mobile, ads would take over the entire screen. The Facebook ad unit is, is kind of incredible. It's 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 like the only couple things like a TV ad unit where it takes over the entire screen. It wasn't this banner stuff off to the side or what or, or or whatever or on the side rail like it was on Facebook on the Facebook desktop. And all the things, the feed, the basically the Facebook's entire business model was a lucky break of of mobile forcing them to not do what they really really wanted to do. But that doesn't. But and what's so interesting is Facebook didn't really appreciate that. There are other ways to build that ever that operating system type model without being an actual operating system, and that's what I mean by making this analogy. Facebook still has that business model. They have the the multi sided markets going on where they are the choke point in the middle, but they it's not about you can do that without it being about developers. You can do that without it being about hardware. In their case, it was about publishers on one side and users on the other, and. Google, it was about websites on one side and, and users and users on the other. And that was the broader point is that this model to understand how an operating system is, is so economically powerful is super useful in understanding Facebook. It's super useful in understanding Google, even though they're not operating systems in a technical sense, because the economic model really is really is the same. There's a degree of meta-ness or recursiveness to this conversation that I, I really appreciate because uh, at an underlying technical level, what an operating system is, is it's designed to abstract a whole lot of things in a consistent basis for developers and for users and for hardware manufacturers. So each is able to focus just on the part that that is relevant. And 
what's been cool about this conversation is that it's almost that we've abstracted the operating, the technical nature of the operating system up to a business level. So you can just focus on those elements to understand what's going on as these paradigms keep shifting from personal computer into uh, the smartphone and then into the home itself and these voice activated devices. It's, it's why this topic is so interesting to me. It really is. That, that, I mean, that was that was a very a very meta comment about a meta about a meta conversation. Yes, but no, you're right. And well, this was the point about getting into getting into Alexa in the home because an operating system does not is not economically successful or not based on sort of its technical wherewithal. Mm-hmm. Right. That's in the, it's an important factor. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but you don't say you know Google succeeded because it was the best search engine. But all the economic factors that go that go into it, well, that's what Windows is the best example, right? Particularly from a user interface perspective, lots of people certainly don't think that Windows was the best, but that didn't matter because what mattered was being at the center of this, being the locus of this mm-hmm. ecosystem right. where every, all parts of the ecosystem were cementing its place. Mm-hmm. And this is this is where the Alexa discussion is interesting because that's why it matters when you hear about all this stuff at CES. Now, I know CES is generally like most stuff at CES never ships or if it does, it fails, whatever. But the idea that there, there's ever more things that are being built for, everyone's built for Alexa and they're 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 creating, they're aligning themselves like the hardware makers under Windows or web pages under, under Google or publishers under Facebook. All the appliance makers are organizing themselves to fit under, uh, to fit under Alexa in part because Alexa was first. They were early they were, you know, Google's API just came out in December, I think. Mm. Uh, Alexa's API came out a year and a half ago or two years ago. So they're first, they're early, and also they're traditional Amazon. They have It's very clear. The API is very, it's exactly what it is. The yeah. implication is that it's harder to use in some respects as an end user because whereas Siri really tries to take a very natural language and it will parse it and figure it out. And that's why they've only opened up the Siri API to a few specific applications because they want to work, th- make it super seamless for the user, right? Apple is always focused on the end user and that it's a very Apple sort of approach to the problem. However, Alexa, yes, you have to kind of get the terminology right for each request, but that means it's super easy for developers and it's super scalable. It scales like, and so Alexa has these skills, right? When we did our podcast uh, back in the summer, Alexa had 1,200 skills. It was just announced today that Alexa has 7,000 skills. The the number of things that Alexa can do and devices it control has increased by 500 or 600% in six months. Mm. And that's the and that's a sort of momentum where you get in a situation where it doesn't matter if Google Home is better. It doesn't matter if Siri is better because you have people that have bought appliances that work with Alexa and they don't replace their appliances that often. Yeah, it's the perfect. It's the this is a really close analogy to exactly what Microsoft did with Windows. Like you said, from a user experience perspective, it might not have been considered the best by many people, but. I'll, And while that is an important factor in people's decision-making, ultimately, people also want to get things done. And in the same way, you're not going to buy an Amazon or a Windows phone if the apps that you require aren't present. 
it, it's nice that Siri's there and you can ask it the party trick question in natural language or same with Google. But if it doesn't interact with the skill or the device or the web page or whatever it is that you want to use, and if it doesn't do so reliably, it, it, it's not going to matter. You're going to resort to the thing that does work and that does have that connectivity and that is supported. Right. And, and then on the flip side, Alexa, like, Alexa and the Echo are two different things. There's a reason they have different names. The Echo is the device. Alexa is the assistant. And the assistant is, is like Amazon will license it to anyone. It, it, it's, been in a, it's been in a lamp. It's in a like stereo system. It's Ford is going to be in their cars. It's going to be in – there's this kid's device that, that, that Marvel announced or Marvel, uh, Mattel, <laughs> Mattel announced. And, and what you're getting is you're going to have all these hardware uh, – on the flip side, you have all these other producers competing to make Alexa – higher performance, more available all over the place. And their, their Alexa is sitting in the middle. It's sitting in the middle with both sides competing to make it better and both sides trying to competing to lock it in. And it, it has the same sort of dynamics as an operating system. Again, I don't want to say that Alexa has won yet. It's very, very early days, mm. but I also would not say that it's a, well, we'll see. It's very early days. Who knows? Like if you look at the dynamics of this stuff, I think the way you win these markets is like that, that, I, that what's that quote? The Hemingway quote, right? How did you go bankrupt? Uh, sl- slowly at first and then quickly. Right. This stuff takes on a sort of exponential nature where it, it, it's slow, 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 and then boom, whoa. It's over. Like, and Google is clearly the biggest competitor. Well, first off, Apple. There is no Siri thing at home. Apple is is they have the phone. I think the blind spot for both Google and Apple was both presumed that the smartphone would be was was the end. Right? It was the end state. And what's so interesting about the home is the home is the one place where you're least likely to have your smartphone with you. Because it's plugged in and charging, because you use it everywhere else, and it's the one place where using voice is not socially awkward at all. Because you're in you're in, you're in your home. It's uniquely suited for this sort of product, and the home is the one place where you're actually buying all this stuff that could connect to it, that would create the sort of lock in that would make it that would make it harder harder to challenge. And you know, Google bought Nest. They thought Nest would be the center, but Nest is is about the smartphone, right? Yeah. Nest was about having this like they were stuck in a smartphone mindset. And this is what's so devious about success. Because even if you would say, oh, I'm gonna read the innovator's dilemma and I'm not going to get in all this sort of thing, is your you you're so shaped by your success that you become oblivious to the possibility uh, to other possibilities, and, and Google—it didn't even occur to Google to make Google Home until Alexa came out. It, it, it's apparently still hasn't occurred to Apple, and it's one of the many reasons why one company never dominates everything. Because you, you, there's all sorts of things that are that walk you into success in a way that makes you miss what's coming next. Yeah, and and it's I mean, and it, it's been a recurring theme how you are successful in one paradigm and that sets you up for failure in the next whether even though on all accounts you should be the one that takes advantage, you begin to see the world through the lens of your success and it happened with Microsoft and the PC and they knew the phone was coming but they couldn't bring themselves to do anything other than see the phone through the lens of the personal computer 
and then it's the same with 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 Apple now. Like everything is viewed through the 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 lens of the watch. And and Nest, uh, Tony Fidel was was former Apple, former like iPhone, iPod, like all that era. It's it's everybody saw it through that lens and. There was probably some discomfort when they used it. It's like, this isn't perfect, but I can't imagine it being anything else. And it took the company that, that, that completely flopped with the Fire Phone to come along and to actually have, they had nothing invested in uh, seeing the world through the lens of the phone because their phone had been an abject failure. It's like, well, let's take, and take this on from a clean slate and see what happens. Right, and then and then to your point about the business model, I mean the the challenge for Apple is Apple it has a hardware based business model. So are they? So one, they're motivated to focus on the phone, right? Because they want you to buy a phone because mm. it, it it has tons of profit with it. If they made a device, they would be motivated to make it themselves and to make it pretty expensive so they can make money on it because that's how they make money, and they're disincentivized to license it out right to let anyone make a device with siri in it because what benefit is accrues to apple then you can argue there's an indirect benefit siri use more often they get more data they can make siri better and that's all true but that's of it that's a much more difficult decision a difficult step to take when it's against your business model right yeah that's Uh, not how apple makes money right and and google you know Google, google did that with android to their credit you know again i still think Android for all the problems it might cost for Google today was the, was a brilliant strategic move because basically by you know destroying Microsoft for all intents and reasons and ensuring f- easy access to Google services but as a money maker it's not a money maker at all because there's no there is no business model really attached to it beyond data collection and it's the same and it's even more concerning with the voice stuff for the reasons we've talked about before because uh, there is no user selection in in the voice world, which means there's no auction, which means there's no where people are deciding an ad ad to pick, and it doesn't mean Google won't compete here. They will, and they have again. But Google, it's how they I make th- money. It's like I can see a path between. Yeah. yeah, it totally does. I can see a path between Android existing even if they don't license it, and Google making more money because but there are more people that are searching for things, and there's not someone sitting between Google and the user, say Microsoft, doing what Google have to do with Apple and paying Apple a licensing fee or a fee to make Google the default browser. Like Android takes that problem away, but in 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 the in the voice worlds, like how does it, without the choice, how does Google make the, the, the path between that is much more tenuous. And as we've discussed, Google's approach is to try and build a premium hardware phone and sell 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 this as a high-end service as a hardware. But that's that's totally not in their DNA and it's going to be a challenge for them to get right. Right, exactly. And, and I, you know, by all accounts, Google is licensing out physical assistant. There were some TVs announced that had the Google Assistant in it. Mm. But, but that doesn't like good for them, but that doesn't mean this problem is going away. Like Google is oh. basically voice abstracts Google yes. away, right? Because Google made money by by being the layer that everyone went through to get somewhere, and on that layer they could put ads. The problem is the whole idea with voice and giving answers is that layer becomes invisible. You get the answer directly. So where's the there? It's too frictionless. There is too little friction. And and Google's prowess is 
creating the conditions for the demise of their business model. Again, the price is success. It's like Apple making such a fantastic phone that you don't feel the need to buy another phone because your phone's already great. Right. Well, I was actually going to say there's a parallel here between what Google did to Microsoft and Android giving away the operating system because Microsoft was reliant on on licensing the operating system and kind of what Android's, uh, what Amazon's doing with Alexa and Echo and Voice because they don't necessarily need to make money on the device itself or, or the, the voice services. What they can simply do is uh, in the same way that Google relied on Android to drive mobile traffic uh, and more searches, uh, Amazon can rely on Alexa eventually to in- reduce the friction and increase the number of things that people buy online. Like uh, Alexa, order me more stuff. Like they have an orthogonal way to make money uh, in the same way that Google did with Android versus Microsoft. Amazon does with Alexa versus Google and Google's going to really struggle as a result. That's exactly right. And, and, and Amazon is just creating, like Google with Android created the conditions for search to make more money. Amazon is creating the conditions to just sell sell you more stuff. Mm. To, they're going to sell you Alexa-enabled devices. They're going to sell you paper towels. They're going to sell you toothbrush. I mean, like once you have Prime, and you like you run out of toothpaste, and it used to be, oh, I'm going to go, like I, I would get this habit, get my phone, take a picture of the barcode on the toothpaste thing, order it, boom, and it's delivered. Mm. It's like, wow, it's amazing how much how much bet- easier this makes life, right? Because you, you don't have to go to the store, you don't make a shopping list, it just shows up on your door two days later. Like once you get Prime, you understand why people who have Prime buy three to four times more stuff than people who don't because it, it, it's, it's transformational. It really is. Now imagine you run out of toothpaste, Alexa, order more toothpaste. And the friction is decreased even more. And anyone who's in any sort of commerce online, like even me with my site, why am I so excited about having Apple Pay uh, on the web? Because getting out the credit card is friction, right? And friction kills conversion. No one knows this better than Amazon. And yes, they have a totally orthogonal business model for Alexa. They don't need to make a direct dime on it because they will make so much more on, uh, on the side. And, and uh, it's hard to compete with a company that doesn't need to make money. Like that, there's Google. You're yes. exactly right. Google did it to Windows, and they're having it done to them. Fate has a sense of irony. We've already it does. ordered. It really we've already does. ordered. We've already ordered people toothpaste. But I've been dying to do this for the past thirty episodes. Alexa, play Exponent. <laughs> James, Sorry. I already am. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, we, we, so I mean, the market. We'll see how big the market is for the home. It, it's clearly a. It's not a smartphone sort of market. And, and, no. Not arguing that it is in the slightest, but I think it's a I think it's a more meaningful market than a lot of people think. And, and this is again totally anecdotal, and I couldn't be more biased. But when you see kids and the way they interact with with these devices, and it's so natural, and when they screw up, it doesn't bother them, and they they like it's the mindset is so different. It's even for someone like me who's technology oriented like i'm very cognizant i'm talking to a device right Mm. like my son every day before christmas asking how many days until christmas to alexa it's just another it's so natural and it's hard to describe but i think anyone who has kids and has these devices knows exactly what i'm talking about you know no one could imagine that we would have our our noses buried in a smartphone and it's maybe say oh people are going to walk around talking to a device in their ear Yes, they are. You see kids, you're going to understand it. And obviously, this is where Apple's big advantage is with the AirPods. And be still, Apple still has the inside track on being that personal device, particularly for you know 
for lack of a better word, rich people. And then Google has the same thing with Android for the, for the rest of the world. So I'm not, we're not counting these people out. For the home specifically, though, Amazon is a challenge. Amazon's making a play. For, like they want to own the infrastructure of your life. They want to own the logistics of your life. And if you think about it, that's really all about the house. Mm. Everything you buy, the vast mm. of things you buy are for the house. The vast majority of, of your life is spent in your house. And Amazon is looking to own the house. Everything from Prime Video to, to, to Alexa to all this sort of stuff. It's just your home life will be Amazon. And Google and, and Apple can fight about when you're outside the house. And, of course, Amazon would like to be there. But if you think about it, most purchases are initiated at home, right? Yeah. I mean, you 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 make a, you might right today. Maybe most people buy at a store, but they thought about what they needed at home, or they made a shopping list at home. And for Amazon, owning the home is a perfectly great place to be from a business perspective, even if they never did get a piece of the smartphone. It's crazy how I think it's not that uh, companies haven't been competing for the home. They have been for so long, but Silicon Valley's vector in has always been entertainment. And it's funny how it, uh, and it's not that Amazon doesn't play in that space, but it's funny how the underlying, the underlying thing that has enabled Amazon to win here or to position to be able to win has been this like, much more low-level, basic, everyday stuff, just the stuff that you interact with on a regular basis. That's exactly right. I mean, and Amazon's like is really the successor, the spiritual successor to CPG companies, consumer yeah. packaged companies, who built, again, no one in tech knows about these companies, but they built 100 billion, massive, massive companies. Like P&G is, is a th- you know, triple-digit billion, billion company that P- P&G doubled its revenue every single decade for like 10 decades. <laughs> like it's, 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 it's incredible. It's one of the most incredible companies ever and no one in tech knows about it, it's, but I guarantee you Jeff Bezos knows about it. Owning the home, selling toilet paper and laundry detergent is an unbelievably lucrative <laughs> business to be in and, and Amazon is completely poised to just own it. Yeah, yeah. So that was take three. Take three, take three on Alexa. Hopefully it was the best one yet. The coffee kicked in. It did. It did. About probably about forty minutes through. I think it took us a little while. But all but. right. Well, apologies for making everyone hang around. <laughs> Sounds good. I will talk to you next week. Episode one hundred. Yes, I know that's a big deal. Oh, we should thank Mailchimp before we go. Our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring Exponent as they do every week. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. I'll see you then. All right. Bye bye. Bye.